0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast, Issues Under the Final Section 199A Regulations, held on February 12, 2019. The panelists for the webcast were George Manousos, a partner in PwC's Federal Tax Services Group, Adam Fierstein, a partner in PwC's Mergers and Acquisitions Group, and the firm's National Real Estate Tax Technical Leader. Michael Hosworth, a Director in the Mergers and Acquisitions Group, and Sherry Foreman, a Partner in PwC's Private Company Services Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of Section 199A Basics and the Trade or Business Identification Roles. Have a listen. So with that, let me hand it off to
1: Sherry to start with just a quick recap of the basics and some new rules that we have for the 199 CAP-A computations.
2: Sure. Thank you, George. For those of us that ha- for those of you that haven't joined us before, we thought we'd spend just a couple of minutes going over what 199 CAP-A is. Um, so, so if you recall from previous discussions, it is a deduction for non-corporate taxpayers of qualified business income. So qualified business income is a combination of both qualified business income plus REIT dividends and qualified publicly traded partnership income. So all of those combined qualify for the deduction. The deduction is 20% of that amount, um, but it cannot exceed 20% of taxable income less capital gain. So there is a limitation if there are losses in other areas on the amount of this deduction. So just for illustration, if a taxpayer was in a top rate of 37% with a $1 million of combined QBI, the maximum permanent de- savings would be seventy four thousand, so that would be the deduction, or that that would be the tax savings related to the deduction. Um, qualified business income includes qualified items of income, gain, deduction, and loss of a qualified trader business. So this is this is an important determination that we'll discuss a little bit later in terms of how you determine a trader business. Um, but though, though that income must be effectively connected with conduct of trader business in the U.S., so it should be effectively connected income, which we'll again get into a little bit further detail in terms of what that means and the consequences. Um, it excludes investment-type income, so it excludes reasonable compensation and guaranteed payments to partners as well. That's important when you think about the previous definition under ECI. ECI sometimes can contain you um, can contain investment income, so that would be excluded under this provision. And then lastly, um, trader businesses are determined under one sec, Section 162. There is a little bit more commentary about that determination and the comments in these final regulations that we'll talk about a little bit as well.
1: I think a couple points on the last provision there, 199 cap A, like most new rules, will put tension and create, put a spotlight on new areas. Reasonable compensation, always an issue for S-Corps. A little more highlight now because it's not eligible income. Mike's going to talk a little bit later about guaranteed payments and the specific rules and planning opportunities around guaranteed payments.
2: So what does qualified trader business exclude? So. You cannot include as qualified income specified service trader businesses. So we have spent some time in the past talking about these. Um, There are several businesses that are listed in this slide with respect to practicing law, accounting, health, et cetera, that are excluded from this. Um, Those exclusions apply if you are above the income threshold limits. So to the extent that your earnings from these types of businesses are below the income threshold, um, they they can qualify for the pass-through deduction. Uh, the trader, trader business of performing services and employee is also not included as qualified business income. So you cannot take employment income. That's where the guaranteed services or the guaranteed payments and the reasonable comp comes in as well as being excluded. So the limitations um, for taxpayers are exceeded if you're above four hundred and fifty, married filing jointly, or 2075 for all others. So that is the high level of that limitation. Anything above that would be subject to other limitations. So if you are subject to those limitations because you've met that threshold, your QBI has additional limitations that need to be considered. So those are um, 50% of allocable share of W-2 wages or the other test would be 25% of your allocable share of W-2 wages plus 2.5% of unadjusted basis immediately after the acquisition of qualified property. So we'll talk about those a little bit more as well, but those are important determinations um, and information that's going to need to be disclosed. <clears throat> um, the, the threshold in terms of phasing out is listed on here. So that begins at 350 for married, 315, I'm sorry, for married, married filing jointly and 157, five for all others. So between those two ranges that we discussed is where the phase out occurs.
1: And for every single pass-through entity, or you know, RPE, if you will, I don't want to say everyone, but I think the presumption is that everybody is going to have to have a reporting obligation under Mm -hmm. 199 cap A, unless you know for certain that your partners will be above those thresholds, and if you conduct your activities in one of those SSTBs, unless you know for certain that they're above the thresholds, you have to provide them information because they may get a full or partial deduction, even if you're doing a non-qualifying activity. That's
2: That's right. That's very important. So so what has changed? What are we talking about today? So there was recently guidance released in January of this year Um, In this just lists the guidance that was released So the regulations that were previously proposed have been finalized. So those were released in August. They are now final They apply for tax years beginning after February 8th, 2019 so you can rely on to the extent you'd like the proposed regulations for 2018 in their entirety there are new proposed regulations that were released that address specific items. So they addressed previously suspended losses, REIT dividends paid by RICs, and certain trusts in the activity, <coughs> um, certain dynamics of, of those trusts. Those will be effective when the final regulations are published. Um, so those are, those are proposed at this point in time. And then there was a, a new REVPROC that was finalized, so this was a finalization of the previously proposed REVPROC related to W-2 wages and how those are calculated. That will apply for tax years after 2017. And then notice 2019-7 was released that provides some safe harbor for treating rental real estate as trader businesses. Again, that is applicable for tax years after 2017 as well.
1: Great. Thank you, Sherry. Excellent overview here. All right, Mike. Let me hand it over to you for a definition of a trader business. I think different people start 199 cap a from a different perspective. I think we generally say you need to start the trader business level. Identify your trades or businesses. So, can you help us kind of initial uh, initially make that determination?
3: Sure, George. And there are really two important determinations that you have to consider in applying the 199 cap a rules. The first is whether you've got a trader business under section 162 of the code. Am I engaged in a trader business at all? And the second very relevant determination under these rules is how many trades or businesses am I engaged in? So, does my activity rise to the level of a trader business? And then, how many do I have? So, with respect to that first determination, if you don't have a trader business, then there's no 199A deduction at all. You have to have income effectively connected with a trader business in order to have good qualifying income that's eligible for the deduction. Um, The next important determination then is how many trades or businesses do I have? Because if you have multiple trades or businesses, you're going to have to engage in a more complicated exercise that involves taking uh, income and deductions from these multiple activities and allocating them among the, the various trades or businesses and also allocating W-2 wages and UBIA for purposes of applying the the limitations and the thresholds that Sherry mentioned and we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, Second, you, you then need to consider the application of the aggregation rules, the rules that we'll get into in a little bit more depth that allow you to take different uh, separate trades or businesses and treat them as a single trader business for purposes of applying these W 2 wage thresholds and the UBIA limitation. And then finally, under the final regulations, there's been some liberalization of the, the specified service trader business rules. Um, they've eliminated the rule treating otherwise qualifying trades or businesses as an SSTB if they're under common control and share expenses uh, with a related SSTB and have gross receipts of less than 5% of the combined gross receipts. That's a bit of a mouthful, but that was a rule that I think was there for the purpose of preventing taxpayers from hiving off very small, otherwise qualifying businesses and claiming the benefit for them. That rule is gone in the final regulations, so there's renewed importance on distinguishing Uh, separate activities as separate trades or businesses. The second rule uh, dealing with specified service trades or businesses under common control and providing services to each other was also liberalized in the final regulations, again in a way that's going to benefit taxpayers that may be able to break their activities apart into separate trades or businesses. So those distinctions take on renewed importance as we apply these final rules. And I think there's a key
1: consideration. I know we've seen in practice uh, several times is that ideally is try and start with one trader business. That's the most easiest way to do it. But then when you start the next step, identifying what your activities are and assigning gross receipts, you could realize that if I'm at one trader business, I may not qualify at all. Let's go back to the drawing board. Can I now break them apart into more than one trader business that's going to help me get some 199 cap a benefits? We'll talk about. Whether that's wise to do or not, and what the implications on other areas may be, a little later.
3: So, that obviously leads to the question of what is a trader business or what is a separate trader business? And um, the discussion in the preamble is interesting insofar as the service sort of says, well, it's beyond the scope of these regulations for us to tell you what's a trader business. And then the preamble goes on at some length. Uh, about all of the authorities that are out there that distinguish, well, first tell you whether you have a trader business and then distinguish uh, between trades or businesses or how many trades or businesses that you have. Again, very basically apply the 162 definition to determine whether you have a trader business. For 199 CAP A purposes, you're going to exclude trades or businesses of performing services as an employee. The 199 A rule expands um, the definition of trader businesses to include renting or licensing tangible or intangible property to a related uh, and commonly controlled trader business. And then finally I think we get to the factors that are going to be where we spend most of our time uh, which are the the very sort of facts and circumstances intensive determination of what constitutes a separate trader business. Um, Is there an intention to make a profit? Do I have separate employees? Do I have separate books and records? Do I have uh, considerable regular and continuous activity to get me to a trade or business? Um, And those are some of the factors that get identified then in the preamble. Great.
1: Thank you, Mike. I think we can't overlook the fact of how important it is to comment on any type of provision, especially with tax reform, but in general. I think the government did a very good job of taking dozens of comment letters into account that resulted in a lot more manageable rules. I know trying to come up with the indicia for determining what is a trader business was requested by many taxpayers. We don't have any bright line rules, but we do have some guidance um, as to rules that we can follow. Sherry's going to take us through that in a little bit. Adam, I know for you and your real estate trader business, real estate industry, big big issue as to when I determine what is a real estate trader business so you want to walk us through some of the relief we got there or some of the rules we
4: got there yeah no absolutely and, and it's interesting because while trader business and, and the rules apply to every activity and you have to determine if you're in a trader business the large number of comments that people made with respect to rental activity and rental real estate and whether when that is a trader business, And that's primarily due to the fact that there's a a quagmire of of case law that's out there since the beginning of of the Internal Revenue Code about when rental activity is a trader business. And the authority conflicts with each other. There's guidance from the IRS that conflicts with each other. And so people could look at some guidance and think you don't have to do anything at all and other guidance that would indicate that you have to do much more than that. And people asked for some clarity given all of this. Um, the the fact that the deduction is intended to be relatively straightforward, particularly for those below the income threshold. And one of the things about this issue is that if you're not in a trader business, even if you're below the income threshold, you don't get the deduction. So it becomes an important issue for anybody below the income threshold, but it's not limited to them because... Anytime you have a partnership or a joint venture, which real estate is often structured as, you might have to look at each partnership or joint venture on their own as whether they're a separate business or not. And again, you may have a lot of real estate activities, but they may be spread across 100 different partnerships. And each partnership may be making the decision on on its own as to whether it's in a trade or business. So the factors that are out there are, are important for, for everybody who's... Um, in any business, but in particular in real estate to to focus on. But while the service didn't provide a bright line rule, they did, again, as as Mike mentioned, sort of step in and provide at least some factors that have been looked at by the courts and in other guidance and indicated those in the preamble. And they also did provide a, a proposed revenue procedure that is intended that's a safe harbor that people can rely on again some interesting factors in each of those that um, as far as where they came out with respect to the the trader business itself they look to factors or noted factors such as the type of property whether it's commercial or residential the number of properties that are rented the types of services that are provided how involved the owner or their agents are on a day-to-day basis and and the terms of the lease whether it's a net triple triple net lease where the landlord's not doing a lot, or other types of leases. And what's interesting to note, I mean, you just look at these factors and you think, how is a taxpayer supposed to weigh them? And it is difficult to do, even for advisors. But then you see some of the factors that they noted, commercial versus residential, and you begin to wonder if you have two taxpayers who are doing the exact same amount of activity they Um, spend the same number of hours on it, everything is the same but they happen to have a residential tenant versus commercial tenants or vice versa, does that really affect the analysis? And it just shows how different people look to different factors that wouldn't be intuitive to people who are doing the analysis otherwise. And then with respect to the safe harbor itself, effectively you have to uh, identify yet a new classification called the rental real estate enterprise and identify how many of those you have, and apply the test to each enterprise. And effectively, you're within the safe harbor, if you spend more than 250 hours on a rental enterprise. Again, one of the interesting distinctions they focused on was residential versus commercial property, and basically said if you have residential real estate and commercial real estate, they can't be part of the same enterprise. And again, I'm not sure why it matters if you you spend 150 hours on residential and 150 hours on commercial where you couldn't use the safe harbor. Or you spend 300 on one or the other. But, but that's the way that at least the, the proposed safe harbor works. And this is an area where one can make additional comments. So people should be thinking about whether they want to make additional comments on that front. As far as the 250-hour calculation goes, it excludes time for travel, financing, and construction, which, again, not exactly clear why those amounts should be those hours should be discounted. In particular, construction is an odd one in the context of 199A, since we don't have a lot of legislative history with respect to 199A. But when you look at the history, originally people could only take the deduction based on W-2 wages, and people stepped forward and said, particularly for rental real estate, that there isn't necessarily a lot of wages going on, but there's so much work in the construction phase and we're building these buildings and that should be counted as well. And so that's why we have the uh, the unadjusted basis calculation there. So for Congress to step in and say, we should look at effectively at construction and, and the value of your assets and then to have take that time out in this context is somewhat of an interesting policy choice. And then the fact that taxpayers, if they want to take advantage of it, have to keep track of their hours, descriptions of what they do, the dates of when they did it, how much time was spent by service providers. And so people may not want to go through all of that effort effectively. I know I don't want to bill my time every day. Um, And I'm sure, I mean, effectively, it's turning every real property owner who wants to take advantage of the exception um, to have to effectively do that as well, not just for themselves, but for their independent contractors and asking them what they spent time on to be able to get to the number. And some other limitations, it has to be a single taxpayer. So if you have 10 partnerships, then even though they may be related in some way, you have to do the 250 hour test on a partnership by partnership basis. Triple net leases aren't covered. So there's a whole host of reasons that even if people are clearly in a trader business, they may not be able to satisfy the, the safe harbor.
1: Great, thank you, Adam. Adam, quick question for you, all the litany of tests you just talked about in the safe harbor. Um, Throughout the regs, the government does a good job of borrowing rules from other places, so we're somewhat familiar with them. Are those tests borrowed, 250-hour tests? Are those borrowed from anywhere or that brand new set of record-keeping people are going to have to do?
4: So people who do passive activity loss rules and things like that and want to establish certain provisions, there are people who are keeping track. I don't know that these... Um, so the concept of keeping track of your time and keeping good records is something some real estate owners will be familiar with, mm-hmm. but there are certainly others who um, who won't have done that. And the, the specific rules, um, again, don't seem to have a particular... Uh, provenance, at least that, especially the commercial versus residential, as far as that that type okay. of distinction okay. that they. have. So
1: some new learning for folks are gonna have to go and cover here.
4: Absolutely, I think yeah, even people who are used to keeping track of their time and maybe used to that as far as how they have to keep track of it, and first of all, even just identifying this this concept of the rental real estate um, enterprise and and what that is, e- even if you were keeping track of your total hours before, now you'd have to keep track of it if you have multiple enterprises on an enterprise by enterprise basis. And so that would, that would probably be new for, for just about everyone. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you.